Thank you very much. I'm Susan. I'm a member of Allen on. I've been a member since July the 8th of 1974. I had to come all the way to Ohio to find out what AFG means. I found out that last night. I know, alcoholics for God. I mean, it's like, oh, isn't that cool? I want to thank thank the committee, thank Pat and for the phone calls we didn't receive and, and uh, for Rob picking us up at the airport. What he didn't tell you was that he had this little bitty sign that said Bray on it, you know, that you, really, you know, and, and uh, uh, we saw all these other big signs printed, you know, and, and little bitty sign. And, but we hooked up and everything was great. And dinner last night, um, it was awesome. It was awesome. And if you weren't there, I'm sorry. Because you miss it. And if you weren't there, it means that you're not involved in the conference. You need to get involved in the conference. And then you get to do fun things like that, you know. And and uh, we had an awesome time last night. An awesome time. And I've been involved in some conferences. And it's always the time before the conference that is just those precious times, you know. And so get involved. Do yourself a favor and get involved. It's really an awesome deal. And I love, I love this family recovery that I keep hearing here all day long. Now, you have to come to Ohio to do a whole conference in a day. I don't know exactly what that's about, but, you know, and, and, uh, but, you know, we just had a great time. And, and, uh, you also have to come to Ohio to wash plastic plates. I'm not too sure what that's about either, you know. <laughs> we had dinner on plastic and then we spent three hours washing the plastic. It's like, makes sense to us, you know. It's like, and that's, you know. But it's been a great, great weekend, and and uh, uh, but I do love this 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 whole thing, uh, the theme of family recovery, and that's what, that's the basis of our group. When Dave and I started our group, that was the thing that we were committed to. That's one of the traditions of our group. Um, Al-Anon speak at open AA meetings. Uh, I know, <laughs> what a thing, you know. <laughs> we listen to each other. We do things together. Um, when we moved into the building, um, we first met in this hotel with the ceiling was falling down, and every time it rained, we had buckets everywhere, and it was just great. It was our first building. We loved it. And, uh, and then we moved into another place, and um, it had this little bitty storage room, and the A's came and built us a room so that we could have our meeting, you know, and, and that's the kind of relationship we have, and, and I am so grateful for that. I am so grateful. They told you, you know, that we came from Norman, and, and they were real big on on family recovery and AAs and Al-Anon's doing stuff together and and uh, it's extremely important to us. It's extremely important to us. Um, you know, I don't know about y'all, but Paula's talk affected me so and and uh, um, and we see that all the time. We see families and children that have been affected by this disease. You know, alcoholism is the only disease that's so powerful it kills people that don't have it. And I've seen that. Uh, I was in a meeting in Lubbock, and and uh, um, this little gal named Mary Sampson was coming, and, and uh, uh, my sponsor sponsored her for a little bit, and they'd been in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, and uh, he finally got sober. He finally got sober, and she went insane, and uh, uh, was following my sponsor around trying to do the deal, and about 8.30 on Friday night uh, at our meeting, she left. And they found her dead Sunday morning. She had taken an overdose. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen it over and over and over. We get we get insane. We get crazy. That's what happens to us if we don't get into recovery. And so I am so grateful for this theme. I'm so grateful to be here. And I'm so grateful for my life. Now I can sit down and we can eat dinner. <laughs> well, I better tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened was like now. And, and I always feel really, I feel real inadequate this afternoon. We've had such incredible speakers today. And I don't know about y'all, but my bucket is so full. It is so full. And uh, this has been an awesome day. And I just feel like we all should just, you know, pack up, go to dinner, and, and then listen to Penny. You know, it's like it's <laughs> enough. But, you know, and it's been great spending time with Maria and, and uh, um, uh, just and Sterling, getting me Sterling, and, and looking forward to hearing Penny tonight. It's just been a great day. So, okay, well, here we go. Uh, I'm from Texas. I'm sleeping in Oklahoma. <laughs> but I am from Texas. 
Uh, I, I was raised in in Odessa, Texas, and I'm the oldest of five kids. And and uh, I think I was born five foot eight. I've been this tall ever since I can remember. And uh, um, so I was always tall and skinny. And I had my dad's nose, and I had to wear braces when braces were not popular like they are today. And and uh, and I really date myself now. I had to wear the little horn rim, you know, the little pointy glasses, you know. <laughs> Third grade started having to wear glasses, and and uh, so you know I always, always as far back as I can remember, I felt different and apart from. I just didn't feel like you looked ever. I never ever measured up, and I just you know that that hundred forms of fear that it talks about in the big book, um, it just seems like it was always right there. Um, and so you know. I, was in this family, and my dad, who is an admitted, was an admitted workaholic, and and uh, so he's never around. And mother ran the show. Mother, my mother, I think we have the same mother. Uh, we've been comparing notes, and mother ran the show, and you did not cross mother. And so early on, I learned several things. I learned that you didn't ask questions. I learned that you couldn't have feelings, and I learned everything evolved around how mother was doing and how she was feeling, and what was going on in mother's life. And I learned to be real quiet, and I learned that if I made really good grades, they'd leave me alone. And so that's what I did. I uh, uh, discovered books. Books were my very favorite friend, you know, and I could escape in those books, and I could become whoever it was I was reading about, you know, and then I wouldn't be five foot eight and, you know, ugly and taller than everybody else in the whole school and uh, uh, have to wear these awful braces or these awful glasses. And, you know, I could be gorgeous and five foot two and blonde and, you know, he would come and rescue me and, you know, we'd live happily ever after. And I did that over and over and over again. I grew up with Donna Reed and Father Knows Best and all that stuff, you know, and, and, uh, and I thought that's what, normal was, you know, and our family certainly wasn't like that. My dad was never around. We never took a problem to my dad. You know, he wasn't there. You know, we took it to mother who took it to dad, and then we got an answer back from dad through mother. You know, we never talked to daddy, and, and uh, that's kind of how it was, you know, and uh, just full of fear and not measuring up and so afraid that I was going to fail. So I didn't do a lot of things because I was so afraid I was going to fail. And then I would disappoint them, and then it would be a whole bad scene. So, you know, I worked real hard at trying to please them and, and not get in trouble and do all the right things. And, and I, learned how to, I learned how to take tests. I learned that I had the ability to make good grades, and I did. Uh, so a lot of things set up in me, that the whole thing of perfectionism that's still there, you know, and, and things like that. And, and uh uh, just kind of grew up, didn't have many friends, and, and pretty much antisocial, and pretty much a loner. That's just, it was just my life, no big deal, you know. Uh, there was five of us kids, the mother was tired all the time, and, and, uh, and we just kind of did our own thing. We were a very self-centered house, you know. Everybody just kind of did their own thing, and stayed out of each other's way, and, and, and that's the way it was. And, uh, I remember in high school, I probably had five dates my whole high school career, and, uh, uh, they were not successful. And uh, uh, I was always on the prom committees. I don't know why, you know, because I never got invited to them, you know. But I always, you know, sign up and do all that stuff. And, and, and I'd decorate the gym. And then I'd go home while everybody else went to the prom, you know. And that's sad, you know. <laughs> so uh, I remember graduating from high school and, and uh, scared to death, absolutely terrified, because I didn't know what the next step was. Mother hadn't informed me. And uh, uh, I just didn't know, you know, what the next thing was. And and, uh, and I remember sitting there in that, that gym, and I, I graduated from Permian High School, which is a fairly large school there, and uh, I think we had like 500 or 700 kids, and, and uh, they were calling out the top ten. And I was number five. And I remember the feeling as if it were yesterday. Oh, they're going to be so disappointed because it's not number one. You know, and, uh, um, and I don't know if they were or not, you know, but that's how I felt. And, and I graduated and, and, uh, um, always had this dream that somehow I could go off to college and a couple inches would fall off, you know, and I get the curves in the right place and, and, uh, 
you know, had the long flowing hair and everything would be wonderful, you know. And they, uh, my parents said that they didn't have the money sending me off, so I had to go to the little junior college there in, there in Odessa. And, uh, uh, so I did. And, and, uh, sitting in a trade class and, um, and walked my first obsession. And set up in me <laughs> what is to dog me until I got to this program. He walked through that door. I noticed him. I didn't hear another thing in that class. All I could think about was him and uh, how I could meet him and, how you know, just the whole thing, you know. And uh, uh, the class met on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And I think this was on a Monday, so I could not wait until Wednesday. I mean, I just could not wait. Got there early, you know, dressed, dressed for the class. And I uh, showed up early and positioned myself at the door, you know, and, Pretty much what I did in the bars once I hit the bars, you know, and and uh, um, and he walked in and, and uh, um, our eyes met. And after class, uh, he was parked close to me. And we sort of was walking out together, and we struck up a conversation. So he invited me to coffee. Well, nobody had invited me to coffee in a very long time, and I hadn't been on a date in a very long time. And uh, so we went on a date, and then he asked me out again. Well, it's two dates in a row. It has to be love. I mean, it has to be. And so we started dating, and um, um, and he was the one. I mean, he was the one. Now, you know, I've read all these books. I've seen all the movies, you know. You meet him, get married, and live happily ever after. Turn your will and life over to him, and everything's fine. <laughs> we talked about getting married, and my folks decided they needed to move to Dallas. And my mom came to me and, and said, you know, we're not too sure how we're going to work this. So I know y'all are talking about getting married. So how about moving it up a couple of years and get married this summer and then everybody will be pleased. And he bought it. And so we did. And, uh, uh, and then they drove off to Dallas and there I was suddenly married, not knowing the first thing about being a wife, you know, living in an apartment. Now I have to do laundry and cooking and all these things that I've never done. And it's like, oh my God. And that fear set in. It was good for about six days and reality set in on the seventh day. And, uh, um, he, he came from the same kind of background and, uh, uh, neither one of us knew anything about anything and, uh, both full of fear. And, uh, so what do you do? You get pregnant. It seems to me like that's the next step. So I did and, and, uh, um, uh, miscarried and found out we didn't have any insurance and, uh, all of a sudden we're like way deep in debt and, uh, now I've never had a job, you know, and, and, uh, he's working part-time jobs and we're just a mess, you know, and I'm 19 years old and my life is already a mess. And it's like, how did I get here? I can't tell my parents because, you know, of course you can't, you can't take any messes home. And so, uh, you know, we're just doing this one day at a time and, and, uh, I get pregnant again and, um, had my first son. And once again, that fear set in because I didn't know the first thing about being a mother. And I remember when I, I woke up in that hospital and they brought me Eric and, and I looked at him and I kept waiting for it to happen. Because I've always heard that, you know, once you, you see that child, you get the mother instinct and everything's just wonderful and you bond. And, and that didn't happen. And it's like I can't tell anybody that that didn't happen because then I'm weird and different and apart from and and y'all will really know that I'm just a screw up walking around on the face of the earth. So I can't tell anybody that I'm scared and I don't know what to do with this kid. And uh, so I take the kid home and and we do that one day at a time and uh, we're having really bad problems and I go home to visit my folks and and. Uh, uh, trying to decide what I'm going to do about this thing, and and he comes and he gets me, and I end up pregnant again. And and uh, when I was six months pregnant with my second son, um, we spent the day together, and actually it's one of the better days that we had that I can remember. And and uh, uh, we spent all day together, and got home, and he went in, and he showered, and he came out, and he said, "I'm sorry, there's somebody else," and walked out the door. And I sat there and. Uh, it was as if my whole life had walked out that door with him because I had turned my will and life over to him. And he was supposed to make me happy, don't you understand? And all of a sudden, he's just walked out. And all of a sudden, I'm six months pregnant. I've got this toddler, and I have not worked, don't have any money. And it's like, oh, my God. And the first idea of suicide hit my head and uh, tried to think of ways to do it because I just couldn't do it. 
And I think the thing, the only thing that kept me from doing it that night was the fact that I was pregnant. And I wasn't too sure what to do with my other son. And uh, so I called my folks, which was uh, probably a fate worse than death. I had to call my mom and tell her that, you know, um, this has happened and I need help. And they came and they got me and I uh, had to go home to Dallas and uh, have my second son. And and it was the blackest, loneliest time of my life, I swear. Uh, every single day I'd get in that car and just drive around because it was so miserable at home. And uh, uh, insane thoughts, you know, if I just turn it just this far, you know, I could go off this way. And, Every single day I did that until Aaron was born, and, and uh, it was back when they were just letting the dads come into the room, you know, and have meals with the mother and the baby, and everybody was all fun and cozy and excited about their kids, and I was in a semi-private room, you know, and there's no him coming in every day with me, you know, and of course this other couple, he showed up at every single friggin' meal, and... Uh, <laughs> And I just wanted to die. Every single day, I just wanted to die. And uh, so I called I called his dad and, and told him that, you know, Aaron was born. And so he came to see Aaron. And, and, of course, my mother's just throwing this big fit that I would even, uh, you know, let him on the property. And she's in, locked into the bedroom crying hysterically because I've done this to her, you know, and all this stuff. And, and he's there, and he's wanting me to come back. And I'm looking at her over here. And I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at her, and I'm looking at him, and he's the easier, softer way, man. <laughs> he is the easier, softer way, you know. Because she's already got my life planned out. Where I'm going to live, where I'm going to work, what we're going to do with the kids. I mean, she's got it all planned out. And, uh, and so I said, sure, let's go. We packed up the car before Mother could figure out what was really going on, and I headed back to Odessa, and we set up housekeeping and. Uh, the thing that he hadn't told me about her was that she was also six months pregnant. And uh, so we were, like, getting calls all the time and, and stuff, and he swore up and down that he was not going back to her. And one day I, uh, she had her baby, and, and, of course, he had to go. And, oh, it's just a big mess. And I'm like, how did I get here? How? What am I doing? What's, you know, what did I do to deserve this kind of... Anyway, I get in my car one day, and, and uh, she has conveniently left a whole bunch of stuff, her stuff in the floorboard of my car. So I walk back in. Of course, he's on the phone with her, and I don't even know where this came from because, I, you know, I have no opinions. I have no backbone. I have no nothing. I, you know, my life is full of fear. It's always been full of fear. Everyone else has always made my decisions for me. And I looked at him, and I said, I want you gone by the end of the day. And turned around and walked back out and walked, got in the car. And I absolutely know that that was God working my life today. Back then, I didn't. But I absolutely know today that that was God taking care of me. I went to work at a shoe store that was going out of business. It's real good for that financial insecurity. And the lady that I worked with became a really good friend. And she took me to a magic place. That was supposed to be my place until I got here. I was listening to Maria this morning and, and listening to the places that she went and the bar in her home and all that. And I thought, God, that would have been so nice. You know, my so-called pre-Alanon career was in the honky-tonks of the best of Texas with the drillers and the roughnecks in the oil field. You know, that's my story. And, you know, I always had this image that, you know, if I could have a life like Maria's, I didn't know Maria back then, but, you know, somebody like Maria, you know, if I could have a life like that, my life would not be like this. My life would not be in the crapper. My life would be wonderful, you know. And, you know, and coming here, and that's what I love about this program, because there's no respecter of anything. And it's such a common leveler. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I come from the Stardust in Odessa, Texas. It doesn't matter that Maria comes from Santa Monica Boulevard. You know, we all felt the same way on the inside. But Vi took me to that magic place called the Stardust. And I mean, I'd never been to, I'd never been to a bar in my life, you know. Um, we always had alcohol in, in the home, but Mother always used it for the cough syrup, you know. 
and, and that's been the extent of my drinking career till I hit the stardust, you know. And she bought me a drink and uh, uh, pushed me toward this guy, and my life changed. My life changed that night. I mean, that obsession set in, and I had, it was a miracle. It was just a miracle. And I chased that illusion until I got here, as hard and fast as I could. And Maria talked about it this morning. I sold my soul, and I sold my dignity little piece by little piece by little piece. Because you see, the spot was empty which meant that I was a nothing. I had to get this spot filled, because if I got this spot filled, that meant that I could be a something. And so I chased that, and I put many things in this spot, (laughs) many of them, and I did many things to get the spot filled. Today, it just astounds me sometimes when I think about the places I went, with the people I went with, doing the things that I did. And today I know that I could not not go. I could not not go. An obsession set up in me that part of it was that, you know, if I didn't go, I was going to miss him. Because he was there, and I knew he was there, you know, and I had to be there in order for us to get hooked up. Well, I found one, of course. Found one. And uh, uh, he was slightly married at the time, but he was separated. And we just had, I mean, and uh, he started, you know, taking me places. And I on a first-name basis with the barmaids and, the, you know, the bartenders. And I just developed a whole new lifestyle that, you know, just was just in my wildest dreams. And, and we just, we did things I thought were cool, you know, skinny dipping in the middle of the night in the, the cattle tank, you know, the water tank. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> I did it. Oh. And, I, you know, and then we went over to some people's house I didn't know, and we were showering and, you know, having breakfast, cooking breakfast. I just had the best night, you know, and. And I did this night after night after night after night, you know. And uh, my poor kids were stuck at babysitters after babysitters after babysitters because I could not not go, you know. And and then when I hooked up with with Fred, you know, he was going to be the answer. Now, we had a slight problem because he drank a lot. I mean, he drank a lot. And we went every single night. And there were some nights that he had to bring me home so that he'd go back and finish it up, you know, because I couldn't keep up with him. And I drank right along with him. I drank hard and heavy so I could fit into those places until I found him. And then I could quit that so I could follow him, you know. And there was a period when I first got here, it's like, oh, maybe I could go, uh-uh, no. It had nothing to do with the booze. It was all about the fitting in and then getting the him. And then the him became my drug of choice, you know. Benoit talks about it so well. You know, it's like, you know, the alcoholic, they, everybody's talked about, it, you know, when you, you drink, you know, and you get that. Well, for me, it's when I get that alcoholic in my life, it's like, yeah, you know, and, and, and I'm complete. I am complete, you know, and uh, so we're doing the deal. And, and uh, he um, uh, went back one night, took me home, went back and. Uh, one of these barmaid friends of ours uh, had a paper route, and they were all drunk, and they went, and it was out in the country, and, and uh, uh, they were out delivering these papers, and they got hit by a, uh, a semi, and uh, he was in the hospital for about six months, and uh, um, came out, and I never saw him sober again. I never saw him sober. If he wasn't shooting up, if he wasn't taking drugs, he was drinking. And he drank from morning till night, and he drank to pass out every single night. And he became my mission. <laughs> we had to get him straightened up, you see, because we got to get married and, you know, have this wonderful, happy life. And he was a mess. And it, it became that merry-go-round. We got on that merry-go-round, and 
the that whole thing I love it in the big book where it talks about the the false becomes real and the real becomes false and you just don't know anymore and you know and I didn't know anymore and he'd tell me things like I just can't stand this anymore I can't stand the pain anymore so I've had a contract put on my life and I looked at him and I thought I don't know if you can do that or not <laughs> and he said and they'll be coming so I had to be on alert for them you know, I had no idea who they are, when they're coming, what they're going to do, but I didn't think I wanted to be around when they showed up. And so I had to be on high alert, you know, and, and, uh, and he had a gun and, and, uh, uh, and so when I get, when he get really depressed, I'd take it home and then he'd threaten me and I'd give it back to him and, you know, and I'd take him to the emergency room so he could get drugs because, you know, he convinced me the pain was so bad that he couldn't stand any longer so we could get drugs and I'd pour the, but I mean, just on and on and on. We just did this one day at a time. Till I just couldn't do it any longer. And I remember I worked at this radio station, and, and uh, it was country and western, and it was all automated. So I spent a lot of hours there with just, you know, the tapes and me. And it was back when Ray Price was real popular, you know. And so I put in my favorite ones for the good times, you know. And after that divorce, I played that a lot, you know. And I'd put on Ray, and I'd cry, and he'd sing, and, you know, and we do that one day at a time. And... And so I was working at this radio station, and it was on Monday. And, and since it's automated, there's not a whole lot of people around. And, and uh, uh, we had a part-time engineer, and Charlie became a really good friend of mine, Charlie Devonport. And, and uh, um, his day was Thursday. That's when he came in and serviced everything. And, and um, for some reason, he showed up that Monday. And it's on July the 8th, 1974. And I don't remember what the crisis was of the day. I know it was that that all-consuming, life-ending crisis, you know. And and uh, uh, I had Ray going, and I was crying and and trying to work. And, and Charlie walked in, and um, he sat down, and he twelve-stepped me. And uh, Charlie was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he died with 28 years of sobriety. And and uh, I owe my life to that man. I owe my life to that man, and, and I'm so grateful that it mattered that I was AA or Al-Anon. He just sat down and he twelve-stepped me, and and uh, uh, he took me to my first meeting that night. And uh, he hooked me up with a lady and sat me down, and uh, I was so frightened. I was so frightened. I didn't know what y'all were about and or what you did, and and uh, but I remember when I walked into that room, and there were just like today. I love listening to the laughter and the conversations and the tears, you know. I've been watching all day. There'll be two or three over here, and there'll be two over here with their heads together, and one's crying, and, and the other one's patting. And, and it's just what we do all day when we gather up, you know. It's just what we do. And I just oh, I just think it's so magnificent. And that was going on that day, and I thought, my God, what in the hell are they laughing at? You know, it's like, this is serious stuff, don't you know? And why are y'all laughing? This is not funny. And uh, so he sat me down in my meeting and said, listen to these people. And I remember, I don't remember who talked, but I remember it was on the first step. And they talked about all the things that we talk about when we're sitting in a meeting on the first step, that we're powerless, that our life is unmanageable, that three C's, you know, that we didn't cause it, we couldn't cure it, nor could we control it, and and all those kinds of things. And I remember it was like, Hopelessness was just hitting me in the face. It was just waves, and it just kept coming, and it kept coming, and it kept coming. Because you see, if indeed he has a drinking problem, and you've taken me to Alcoholics Anonymous, then by gosh, you should know what to do in order to get them sober. And you're sitting there telling me that there wasn't anything I could do. And I felt so hopeless that night. I thought I was going to explode in about a million pieces. And I remember going up to try. I couldn't wait till the meeting was over. It's like, I, I, my head's going to explode if they don't hurry up. And uh, uh, I remember running out of that room right after the meeting closed and hunting Charlie down. And, and I was just sobbing and, and uh, uh, telling that I, I don't understand. They tell me I can't do anything. What is going to happen to us? We have no solution. What's going to happen to us? And he looked at me, and I am so grateful that God allowed me to hear these words. And Charlie looked at me, and he said, Susan, I don't know what's going to happen with Fred. I don't know, but there is help here for you if you will just keep coming back. And I heard that. So I just kept coming back. I didn't know where else to go. I am so grateful that it was my last stop because my next stop, because that morning, that morning I had gotten up and it's like, I can't do this anymore. 
I cannot do this anymore. It hurt to walk through the air. It hurt to walk through the air. My hair hurt. You know, it's like every cell in my body was screaming, enough, enough. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And I knew that I could not do another day. Now, I wasn't sure how I was going to end it, but I knew I could not do another day. And I think that's what Paula's story touched me so, because I wanted the pain to stop. And I didn't know how to make it stop. So I just kept going back to these silly little meetings. Now, I figured out that, okay, there's 12 steps. There must be a test. I'm a good test taker. And if I pass whatever test it is, whenever they give it, then they will give me the secret, and I can go home and get him sober, and then we'll live happily ever after. So that's why I kept coming back. And I kept coming back and kept coming back. And slowly, Benoit says that the only thing she hates about this program is it takes time. And that's so true. I want an instant answer. I still want an instant answer. I want an instant answer to whatever's going on, you know. My God just doesn't work that way. So uh, uh, I just kept him back. And uh, he was not very pleased that I was going to some place where they talked about alcohol and alcoholics. And uh, he just wasn't too pleased. And so he booked him to Houston. And, and um, I don't know why, but it was okay that he left. And uh, I just got coming back. Today, looking back on that whole period, there was something about sitting in a meeting with y'all twice a week for that hour than the rest of the week. I felt different when I came and put myself among y'all. And I didn't understand it at the time. But today I know it's because I felt safe. I felt safe. Everybody's talked about it today. You loved me. You cared about me. And most importantly, you told me you understood. And it's absolutely the first time anybody told me that they understood how I felt. Because, you see, in my house, you couldn't talk about feelings because you weren't allowed to have them, any negative ones. And I didn't know what to do with them, so I just stuffed them away, stuffed them away, stuffed them away, put them away, ignored them, pretended like they weren't there, covered them up, you know, Got the hymn after the hymn after the hymn after the hymn because I could not tell anybody how incredibly frightened I was to walk through the air. But I came in here and I could say, I have so much fear going on, you won't believe it. And they'll look at me and say, oh, yeah, I will. You know, it's like, yeah, I understand. I understand. I understand. And what an incredible thing that is that we give to each other. So I just kept coming back because I felt safe here. And, you know, eventually things started kind of click here and there. You know, I hated the traditions because I didn't understand them. And so, you know, and, uh, uh, but I loved it when, when they, they talk about the steps and, and I, and I understand those either, you know, but, you know, I just kept coming back. And the thing that probably would have run me off is that y'all talked about God. Because that was so scary to me. I grew up in church. That's one of the things Mother did for us that I'm really grateful for because she, she put us in church and I went to church every week and, and, uh, but, you know, it's that same thing. You know, on Sunday mornings, we had to go to the sermon. I hated the sermon. Oh, I hated the sermon. I love Sunday school, but I hated the sermon because I didn't understand what he was talking about, you know. And then, not only on top of that, you had to listen to that for 30 minutes. Then he'd go into this long prayer after the sermon. And, uh, you know, my mind could not stay with him. And, and then I'd be thinking about what we were going to do for lunch and, you know, what was on TV when we got home and, you know, calling my friends. And then I'd feel so guilty because I was doing all that stuff. Because y'all looked real spiritual. And y'all acted real spiritual. And everybody seemed to pray real spiritually. You know, and I just wasn't getting it. But you couldn't tell anybody that you just didn't get it, you know. And uh, I was going to this little, um, I had some friends up the street. And uh, they went to this little non-denominational church. And I, they invited me to go to this revival. And it was one of those really incredible Things, you know, it's like this guy was up there and he had, I don't know, some kind of felt and he was doing all these pictures, you know, and he was live and they had the tambourines and it was fun. I mean, it was fun and it was like, wow, they had the call down and I went down and, and for the very, for a brief period, I thought, this is it. This is it. This is, this is what they mean. Getting religion, you know, and, and it's like, whoa, you know, and I was so excited and pumped, you know, and 
we were late getting home, and my mother met me at the door with that finger, and I was in trouble and grounded, and those feelings went away. And nobody told me that they would go away. So I made a decision right then that God did not like me and that this deal didn't work. And that was pretty much my attitude until I got to y'all. So then when you start talking about God, it's like God doesn't work, don't you understand? He works for y'all. He works for those people in church, but he does not work for me. And besides which, if you really knew the places I've been, the people I've been with, and the things I've done, you would not want me sitting in your meetings. Much less God having anything to do with me. And so, but I stayed because I didn't have any place else to go. Thank God. I didn't have any place else to go. So I just kept coming. And uh, uh, this little lady that Charlie introduced me to, we just kind of became pals. And bless her heart, she was such a dear. She called me every morning and just to tell me that she loved me to have a good day. Nobody had ever done that for me, ever. And she'd pick me up and take me to meetings. And after the meeting, she'd sit in my driveway for hours. And the, this, all this this poison, you know, was just like coming out. And, and she'd listen to it for hours and hours and hours, bless her heart. I know there's a real big place in heaven for her. And uh, But she, she was fairly new, too. So she really didn't know anything about steps. And, you know, they talked about, we studied the steps. And they talked about sponsorship. And I didn't know what that was. And she didn't either. So she was sort of my sponsor, you know. We were just kind of tripping along, doing meetings and stuff. And I don't know, I was about six months in this program, and uh, uh, the space is empty. And not much has changed other than the fact that I'm going to meetings and Freddie and I are buds. That's about all that I've changed in my life. And I go, and my, my pattern is to go in. Um, the Allen meetings right here. The A meeting was in the back. They had a kitchen area, and they had a refrigerator back when they trusted people, you know, and you go in and get the Cokes and go to your meeting. And so I'd, I'd always go in, get my Coke, and go to my Al-Anon meeting. And since I didn't have anybody on the A side, I didn't know too many of them over there. Well, I come around that corner. Very sad. Up on the bar and uh, looking cool. And uh, our eyes meet. And uh, whoa. And that obsession set in. I didn't hear anything about the meeting. I mean, Nothing had changed in all those years. I mean, it happened every single time, you know, and I couldn't wait to get out. And as soon as I got out, you know, maneuver right and, you know, and sure. But he was real well. He was a year sober living in a halfway house. That's how well he is, you know. <laughs> but we hooked up and, and uh, uh, you know, started doing this AA stuff, you know, and I'm thinking, man, this is cool. I mean, he's already sober. He is already sober, man. Has no sponsor and he's living in a halfway house, but by gosh, he's not drinking, you know. And and uh, make a long story short, short, he decided we ought to get married. And, and uh, so we we arranged to get the kids out and, you know, we set up a date. And we hadn't done anything to get married, you understand, but we set the date. And so all day long we're doing the thing, you know, getting the marriage license and then he backs out. And then I talk him back into it. And then we go to the next. I mean, we did that all day long. And by evening time, he's backed out again. So we're having dinner. And, and I looked at him. I said, well, if you aren't going to marry me, then you need to take back the rings. And he looked at me. And he said, go get in the car. And we went and got married. And it's like, God really tried hard. <laughs> he really tried hard that day, you know. But uh, I stayed married to him for six years, and, and uh, the best thing that came out of that is we moved to Lubbock, Texas, when I was about a year in this program, and uh, that's where I met the sponsor that I have today. Thank God. I would have died. I would have died in here because I wasn't getting any direction. I, I You know, nothing had changed other than the fact that I was going to meetings. That's the only thing that changed. Now, I've traded a drunk one for a sober one, but absolutely nothing else had changed. Turned my will and life over to him, and, you know, we set up housekeeping. And, and uh, we moved to Lubbock and, and met my sponsor. And I remember sitting at the hub of the plains one day, and, and uh, she walked in, and I looked at her and I said, could I talk to you because I'm absolutely dying. This deal's not working, and I don't know what's wrong. And she became a sponsor that day and put me in the steps. And uh, I owe my life to this woman. She and I have been together uh, almost 27 years now. And we've walked through all kinds of stuff together. I, From that relationship, I have learned how to do every other relationship in my life by staying committed to that relationship. Through the good times, the bad times, the hard times, the angry times, 
all the times I have been committed and we stuck still and worked through it. And because I was able to work through it with her, I've been able to work through every other relationship. What a miracle. What a miracle. Uh, we were really having bad problems, and, and we moved to Vernon, Texas. Vernon, Texas is the armpit of Texas. Um, I really thought God had left me in the desert and deserted me. It was awful. And there was very little program there. I'd show up for an Al-Anon meeting, and there may be me, and there may be a couple others, you know. And thank God for the AAs, because they would vote to open their meetings so I could sit in a meeting once in a while. And and uh, it was a very, very lonely time. And we got to a place where it was a – and, you know, I started working some steps, and some things started happening in my life. And I started getting a relationship with God. And, and all the things that happened to us when we worked that process of the steps, you know, um, I believe the steps are a process and they're a continual process. And I'm always in that process of uncovering and discovering and recovery. And uh, I started doing that kind of stuff. And, you know, this marriage wasn't looking all that great. You know, well, some recovery started getting in there. And, and uh, he was pretty abusive emotionally, actually. And, and uh, my poor kids, you know, um, they were both very angry. And it was it was not a pretty sight. And, uh I did an inventory on that relationship, met her at a woman's conference and did that inventory and she gave me some things to do. And I went home and I did those one day at a time and, and because at this point I really, really had turned my will and life over to God. And I really wanted whatever his will was. More than my own. And I really want, if this thing was supposed to work out, then he was going to have to show me. And if I was supposed to leave, he was going to have to show Because I didn't know anymore. I did not know. And I just gave up the fight. I just surrendered. And uh, I did that one day at time. And I got a phone call. I was working at, uh, I was working as security guard. It was one of those high-powered jobs. Mm-hmm. And I just got promoted to lieutenant, which was really such a big thing, you know. And I got to move into a little guard shack that wasn't much bigger than this, you know. And, and uh uh, moved from the night shift to the day shift, uh, which was a big step up, and and uh, um, and it had eight hours built in overtime every single week. And uh, the Monday that I started my new job, I got a phone call in my guard shack, and it was him saying, "I can't do this anymore, and I need to move out." I said, "Oh, okay." I hung up the phone and finished my day. And I absolutely knew that God had answered that prayer. Now, I'm going to tell you that it wasn't painful because it was. And, you know, now I'm a two-time loser and it's like, ugh. You know, and, and uh, uh, thinking, I'm just going to be single the rest of my life. You know, suits me fine, you know. And and uh, my sponsor had moved to Norman and she was getting married and wanted me to come to the wedding. And I went and lost control of my life. Turned my, I'm always turning my will and life over my sponsor, you know. And it's like... Uh, she said, move up here. We'll find you a job, find you a place. And I said, okay. So I went home, packed my stuff, moved to Norman, Oklahoma. And got into a group uh, that was, they described it. You know, it was something was happening all the time. And it was fun and exciting. And I got some gals to sponsor. And life got really good. Found a job, found a little house, and, and lived on the AA row like he was talking about. And just having a good time. Just having a good time. And he told about how we met. And I tell you, when I hear him talk sometimes, it just overwhelms me. I am a two-time loser in this deal, you know. And when he talks like and says those things, I don't deserve that kind of stuff. I don't. Thank God that I don't get what I deserve, you know. Thank God that we get we get recovered here, you know. I don't have to do those things anymore. I can live a different life. And I can be the kind of wife that he deserves, you know. And uh, uh, sometimes I just get overwhelmed with the goodness that's in our lives today. Uh, it's just overwhelming to me. At any rate, we got married and uh, <laughs> that's what here. Uh, we got married and uh, uh, it's being married to my best friend. Seventeen years later, it's still being married to my best friend. And that is such a gift. That is such a gift. My kids, uh, my oldest uh, got an Alateen. Uh, they had a really good Alateen group there, and the sponsor made sure that every single kid had a sponsor, and they were all members of Al-Anon and AA, and he had an AA member, and Roger treated Eric just like he was another drunk. 
He was a newcomer drunk, and he picked him up every Saturday morning, took him to coffee, and worked the steps with my son. And I watched the miracle of this program happen in my son. I watched the anger go away. I watched him get some peace and serenity in his own life. What a deal. Roger got drunk. It's amazing that people that God uses to save our lives. But he did. He cared about my son. My youngest son didn't want anything to do with anything, and uh, uh, we tried allotting, we tried counseling, we tried, one of the couples had a farm, they took him out to the farm, I mean, we tried everything, because he was into a lot of stuff, he was into weird stuff, he was dressing up in my clothes and hiding in the closet and doing weird things and stealing and uh, just crazy, and uh, the final straw for me was the fact that he stole from my sponsor, God, you're talking about humiliating, ugh. And she called, and I knew why she was calling. Of course, she didn't say, but I knew why she was calling. I did not want to have to go over and have lunch with her. Did not want to go. And went, and I love my sponsor, and walked in, and she's like, Erin's in trouble, and we need to figure out a solution. It wasn't about her stuff. It wasn't the fact that he stole from it. It was that my son was in trouble. So we did some things, and we talked about some things, and we tried some things, and it's so hard to put 27 years and an hour, I tell you. We had started women's conferences, and, and we had started a heart-to-heart in Oklahoma, and uh, from that sprung some other conferences around in Missouri. And, and we had gone off to one of these, and I was, I was sitting in a workshop on forgiveness. And I understand today that I do not have the capacity to forgive, that what I have to do is surrender to God, and God gives that to me. And I was sitting in a workshop on forgiveness, and, uh, you know, I'd done all the amends. I'd written a letter to my ex and, you know, and, and all that stuff. I'd done all that stuff. And there was always this little bit that was not complete with him because he did a really bad thing to me. And I could not let it go. I could not lay it down. It's just like this rock that I carried around always, you know. And I was sitting in this workshop on forgiveness, and they talked about full circle, and they talked about, you know, that I had to forgive him. And it's like, well, you know, I'd asked for forgiveness for my part, but I'd never done that. And I went to Vinoy, and she gave me a thing to do, and I went out there, and I did that. And that, I was able to let go of that rock that day. When we were got in trouble with Aaron, and just to the place where I didn't know what else to do, uh, one day I was praying about it and the thought hit my head, you need to call James, the kid's dad. I called him and he didn't have much of a relationship with either boy. And uh, I said, I'm in trouble with Aaron and I do not know what to do. Now, if I hadn't done all the things and shown up to all the things and followed my sponsor around and did all that stuff, I would have missed it because I would not have been in Missouri sitting in that workshop on forgiveness and been able to do that. And then I would not have been able to pick up that phone and call him and tell him I was in trouble with my kid. But I did, and he said, send him out here. And so I had to send my kid. He was 14. I had to send him to my dad, his dad, and he stayed there. And uh hardest thing I've ever done. Hardest thing I've ever done. Of course, my my bio, biological family thought I was a terrible person for sending him away. And, and y'all just picked me up and carried me and supported me. And my grand sponsor and I were at a conference sitting up late. And she's like, I know you have so much pain about Aaron. She said, I'm in a good spot. So I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to carry part of your pain. That's what we do for one another. And they helped me through that. They helped me through that. When he was 18, I got to go out there and be at his graduation, and uh, he was so excited. And uh, he went out there, and he straightened up. Dirty little kid. <laughs> straightened up and uh, lost a bunch of weight and straightened up and uh, was doing good. Was doing good. And, and uh, uh, so I got to go out and be at his graduation. And then Dave... Got a promotion and um, called me one day and he's like, pack your pack your sweaters because we're moving to Arizona, which is where Aaron was. And we got to go out there for a year and a half. And I got to go out there and make amends to my kid and put that relationship back together. A kid is 30. And I talk to him every week. He has my youngest granddaughter. And uh, I got a birthday card from him this year with this little locket thing. And and in that card, he was talking about how proud he was to have me for a mom. I absolutely know that 
You can't give up five minutes before the miracle. That took a long time to put that relationship back together. We are best friends. He tells me all the time how proud he is of me. I just got a promotion at work. I work in the office of the controller. <laughs> Isn't that like the perfect place for an hour on? <laughs> I get to control the whole university's money. So, I mean, it's just like, ooh, power, you know. <laughs> anyway, I got a promotion, and my son called me up, and he's like, I am so proud of you, Mom. I'm so proud of you. And he called me my first day because he just wanted to know how my first day went. A year ago, my son, the son got sick and was having seizures and tremors and, and stuff. And it's been a hard year. And uh, I went several times. And my husband, he's so good. And one day, my daughter-in-law called, and she was in a panic. And uh, they took me to the emergency room, and he was flopping around and having this thing. And and uh, and he, they put me on a plane that Sunday. And it cost a lot of money to fly that Sunday. But he put me on a plane, and I'm so grateful for that because I had to go. I had to go. And and this year has been another process of letting go. You know, my grand sponsor talks all the time about we've got our own path. We each got our own path, and we have to stay on our path. And our pain comes from trying to bring all these other people to our path, you know. And I spent a lot of years trying to put all these people on my path because underneath my disease and my Elanonism is the absolute fact that I know best. And I know best for everybody concerned. And if you just listen to me and straighten up, everything would be just fine, you know. And uh, I take that to the nth degree. Still do. I was in the bathroom a while ago, and I was thinking, well, there's a better way to do this line where we don't have... I was! Thank God I don't have to act on it today, you know. And so I went out there, and of course, in my head, there's something I can do to fix this kid. and Because and, I love him so. And uh, there's nothing I can do. There's absolutely nothing I can do. But I went, and he was grateful I was there. And it's been a hard year, and it's been a year of process for me of that surrendering, you know, to today where I absolutely know that I cannot fix my kid. I cannot make it better. I cannot make it better. I could not make it better when he was 14, and I can't make it better now. My oldest kid lives in New Jersey, and uh, uh, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, when was it, eight or ten years ago? Called up one day and he said, um, Mom, I'm taking the first step. Because he is just like me. Oh, he is just like me. And I said, oh, you're going to Alana? He's like, no, I'm going to A. I said, well, when did you ever drink? I missed it. <laughs> but he was in the Marines, so, you know, I was like, mm, so there you go. <laughs> but actually, you know what the bottom line was? He was dating a gal that was in AA. So he needed to be where she was. And she was in, bless her heart, she was in AA. She was going to three counselors, had three different sponsors. She was a mess. I mean, she was a mess. And Eric was following her around. And all of a sudden, he got crazier and crazier and crazier. And what was happening was he wasn't sitting in a solution. He was going to all these group things. And they were uncovering all the stuff that had gotten healed with the steps. And he got crazier and crazier. And he celebrated a year and then he called and said, I can't do this anymore. It's like, it's okay, son. It's okay. And he hasn't. He doesn't drink. and uh, uh, But he doesn't go to the program anymore. And, and that's why we're so committed to doing what we're doing. That message has got to be there. Man, it wasn't there when Eric got there. It wasn't there. He fell into a group that it didn't matter. It didn't matter if you came or you went or if you had a sponsor or didn't have a sponsor. It didn't matter if you went to three group therapy things. It just didn't matter, you know. And man, oh man, he could have died. He could have died. I want to tell you real briefly and I'll shut up because dinner's here. This relationship with my mom has been a love-hate relationship all through recovery. It's been tough. <laughs> it has been tough, and I've worked really hard. The thing that has absolutely changed my life, I was sitting in the very first heart-to-heart that we had started 20 years ago, and a woman named Marcy White was our, uh, one of our workshop leaders. And she talked about the blessing, and the blessing absolutely changed my life. And what she said was, the blessing is every child's birthright. When a baby is born, it's the parent's responsibility to give the blessing to the child. 
And what the blessing is, is just to let that child know that they are loved unconditionally. They are loved exactly the way they are. They are perfect in every way. They, they are special. They are one of God's kids. And that's the blessing. And what she said was, especially in alcoholism, that has gotten lost. And she said she realized in looking at her parents, they didn't get the blessing because of their parents. And that it had gotten lost along the way. And what she realized even further was, that's what we do here. We give each other the blessing. We do it all the time. My sponsor does it for me. You know, hopefully I do it for the gals that I sponsor. And so we give each other the blessing. And I get healed here. And I get that unconditional love. And I can accept that unconditional love here among y'all. And what she said was that I could turn around and I could start giving the blessing back to my parents. So I started doing that. My sponsor would tell me all the time, don't go back to the dry hole. My mom's a dry hole. She cannot fix you. She cannot give you what she doesn't have. Don't go to the dry hole. Now, every once in a while, I had to go test that, you know. <laughs> and I never knew, I never knew which mother would show up, you know, when i go home. My mom, when I was growing up, she, she had back problems and all this, and she got hooked on the Valium. She had all those prescription drugs. And then somewhere along the way, she switched to alcohol after I got in the program. And I was home one Sunday, and, and she stopped me, and she shook me, and she said, Can't you tell I'm drunk? It's like, oh, because I quit looking. I mean, I quit looking for, you know, and, and so it didn't occur to me she was drinking. You know, she's always just weird. And, and you know, I just accept the fact that she's weird. It's like, oh, well, okay. Well, then my alanarism kicked in. It's like, well, okay, well, then who do we need to call? What do we need to do? And we'll get you sober. Da, da, da. She's like, with all that anger and hatred, she looked at me and she said, I do not want to practice one day at a time. Thank you very much. I am not an alcoholic. I will not go to your friggin' meetings. I do not want what you think is the solution. I said, oh, okay. I went and picked up my car, keys, and I said, well, I'll see you later, Mom, and got in my car and drove home, calling my sponsor, <laughs> and said, oh, my God. And she said to me, it's going to be really hard because you represent a solution that she chooses not to do. Therefore, she cannot be around you. And she was so right. Oh, my God. It was horrible. She hated me. She didn't want me around. It was It was like sometimes I'd go home, and I'd have to be real prayed up. I'd have to be real prayed up, get that God skin on, and walk in, do a weekend, go out. And sometimes it just I just couldn't do it. be like she'd take a potato peeler and just peel off every inch of my skin, you know. And I'd be this bloody mess, get in the car, cry all the way home to Bray, and, and call my sponsor, you know, and get okay again. Because she had a mom just like mine, you know. And so we'd always, and it got to be a joke. It's like, well, it's just mom. That's just mom, you know, and, and uh, somewhere along the way it got okay that, you know, we did not have a good relationship. About uh, five years ago, six years ago, I was at my grand sponsor's, and I got a phone call about midnight from Dave, and he's like, your mom's been in a car wreck, and she's in Waco, and uh, you might, she's in intensive care. So uh, I, get, I get down to Waco, and what's happened is my dad's run over my mom with the car. <laughs> And she's in intensive care, and the car has rolled over her chest, and she can't breathe, and uh, she's fighting everybody. So I walked in, and I said, looked at her and said, Mother, you breathe, breathe now. And she looked at me in her eyes, you know, and she just quit fighting, and we connected. And for she was in the hospital for a week, and uh, you have to understand there's five kids. I am not one of the blessed kids. There are some blessed kids in our family. There are three middle kids, you know, and uh, uh, they are. They're who Mother hangs out with, who she talks to. They're, they're best friends. They do all stuff together, and I'm not part of that crowd. And uh, I have two sisters and uh, who are blessed kids, and and uh, she didn't want anybody in the, ha- in the room with her but me. Now, they were pissed. <laughs> like, I don't understand why she, she don't want us in there. You know, how could she want you in there, you know? And God did amazing things that week. He healed that relationship with my mom. It got okay with me. It didn't matter about her. It got okay with me. The whole competition thing with my next other sister, I didn't like her. I didn't like, I never liked her. You know, from the time they brought her home until this point, I did not, I tolerated her, but I did not like her. And she and I were the ones that ended up that week doing the deal, and uh, we went to dinner one night. And God healed that relationship. 
my little sister, who I do not know well because her senior is different than us, we got to talking, and she's like, Susan, you know, I learned something this week. And I could say something to Mother, and it would be perfectly all right. And you could say the exact same thing, and it's World War Three, And that's not fair. I thought, gee, that's cool. You know, it's like, it's, I'm not crazy. You know, it's what I thought. It's like, oh, man, it's not. I'm not the only one that's crazy here. But anyway, we got we got healed, and and uh, a few a couple of years ago, June, my my youngest daughter uh, granddaughter was born, and I was out in Arizona, and I got a call from my mom, and uh, she said your dad's sick, and I said, what do you mean he's sick? I just saw him in April, and she's like, he's sick, and he won't eat, and uh, of course in her head, this is how wonderful our family is. In her head, she had spent some money on getting implants for her teeth, and it was quite a bit of money. And so she thought that Daddy was punishing her for spending that money, and so he quit eating. <laughs> so I fly home, get in the car, drive down to Fort Worth, and I walk in, and Daddy walked in the room, and I had to go outside. Absolutely took my breath away because I did not know who he was. This little frail, skinny thing with this huge extended stomach. And I looked at my mother and I thought, "What are you thinking?" So we got to get him to the doctor. Well, of course he wouldn't go. You know, and I, 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 I swear the disease just makes me insane. You know, it's like, you know, if they were doing the things to take care of themselves, you know. And if he had gone to the doctor when he first got sick, he might still be here today. But he didn't. And um, we had to trick him. And he thought he was going to Shreveport to gamble. And actually, <laughs> and my sister is on the way to Shreveport. And she arranged to have her doctor at her house. And they stopped. And he took one look at him and slapped him in the hospital. And they did surgery. And he had colon cancer. And he lasted, uh, that was in July. And he lasted till the following February. And uh, I am so grateful for this program. I am so grateful. Because y'all teach me everything I need to do whatever it is. They talked about Jim dying. And we had the privilege of being there when Jim died. I, I stayed up with him the night that he died the next morning. And I stayed up with him so that my sponsor could sleep the next that night. And he died the next morning. And, you know, and I've never been with anybody that died. And watching that and doing that with my sponsor taught me what it was like to walk through the dying process. So I was able to go home and be of service to my parents and help them walk through the dying process. So I did that. And it was, boy, it was tough, you know. It's like, because every time there's a crisis, mother calls me. She doesn't call the rest of the kids. She calls me because she knows that I will come and I will take care of it. And so I just about get home, get back into work, and phone would ring. I was like, oh, dear. <laughs> you know, it's her again. In the next crisis, I get back in the car, and I go back down. And, and I did that, you know, all through those months, and I'm so grateful for that. I did all the doctor stuff. I did all the hospital stuff. And thank God that, you know, I had all that experience before me because I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff, you know. And in October, I was down there, and or September, I guess, and, and taking care of whatever it was. And I was getting ready to come home on Sunday, and Mother came out on the porch where we were at, and uh, she said, uh, I need you to promise me something. You cannot tell anybody else. And I was like, well, Mom? And she said, no, you have to promise me. I was like, okay, I promise. And then she showed me her breasts, and she had a growth on her breast that had grown to the outside that was about this big. And, and uh, I was like, well, you got to go to the doctor. She's like, you do not understand. Now, you promise me. I am not doing anything about this. She was treating it with Band-Aids and uh, antiseptic ointment, uh, except that it started bleeding, and she couldn't get it to stop. And so she needed somebody else. I don't know why. She thought, you know, just what we do, you know. And so and she's like, you cannot tell anybody else, and I'm not going to the doctor, and you need to go home. My head, you know, my eyes spin in my head, and, you know, it's like, okay, I get in the car, and, of course, first thing I do is get on the cell phone, call Benoit, and it's like, you know, and I'm hysterical, and, and Benoit gets hysterical, and she calls Pat, and she, Pat's, Pat's so funny, she's like, you know, I can't hardly, because she's got rheumatoid arthritis, she said, I can't hardly get on my knees anymore, but I believe I need to get on my knees on this one. <laughs> And Benoit called me back the next day. She said, Pat and I have talked about it. Because I don't do anything. I don't do anything without checking with my sponsor. 
I don't do anything without checking with my sponsor first. She called me the next morning and she said, Pat and I have talked and, and believe that this is a promise you do not have to keep. And you need to tell the rest of the kids. And so I did. I called the other kids. and But then 4.30 the next morning, another call. She's in enough fear now she's ready to do something. So I had to get back in the car and drive back down and, you know, and do all that. And she had breast cancer and she had a mastectomy. And, and uh, we got through that. And uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. She, she, I don't know. My mom's crazy and that's okay. You know? <laughs> that's all I can say, you know? Uh uh, she says that she's cancer-free, and I just got to believe that for today, it's okay, you know, because I don't know. She's just she's just who she is, and that's just the way it is. And I don't have to change her today. I can just love her, and I can be the best daughter that y'all have taught me to be. It's just that simple. And it's her path and her life. And I don't have to bring her over to my path and make her do it my way. What a freedom that is. What a freedom that is. I can't tell you, 27 years in this program, it seems like it's just gone by just like that. And yet, what it has become is my life. This is not a thing that I just do on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays. This is a thing that I do every waking moment of my life. This is me. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. What a magnificent thing. You give me everything. You give me purpose. You give me a relationship with God that I didn't think I could have. You give me a way to have a relationship with those people that made me insane. You give me a relationship with kids I didn't know how to do. You give me a relationship with a mother that I thought hated me. You've given me forgiveness. It gives me everything I need today. Everything. I got to go back to school. You show me how to do that through commitment, accountability, responsibility, all those things. I heard Donna L. years and years ago. She was my very first Al-Anon speaker. And she said something, just one quick little sentence that just absolutely caught my attention. She said, you know, what this program teaches me is how to be a mature adult. I thought, I don't even know what that means. And that's what this program does. It helps me to walk through the air a free person. What a magnificent thing. What a magnificent thing. I respect this program. I respect the fact that we get to do AA and Al-Anon together here in Dayton, Ohio. I think that's so incredible. I love this program. I love this program. It is my very life. And I can't tell you what a great opportunity it's been to be here. And I thank you for your attention. And let's go eat dinner.